Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, and the title of the message is Presuppositional Resurrection. Presuppositional Resurrection. Acts 2.22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And this verse right here, 24, is the one that we're going to be concentrating most on a little bit later. Whom God has raised, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible. And the word could also be meant capable of that he should be holden of it or be held by it, death or the grave, in other words. For David, verse 25, speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I shall not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in hell, which is the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you shall make me full of joy with your countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Wherefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's very, very clear from the word of God that when God gives his people faith, to believe something, that he also gives an understanding with that faith, so as to embrace something that's understood, and that's, of course, previously revealed by the Spirit of God. That's how that works. There's a very popular notion today among those that claim to be Christians is that they search for evidence for the truth claims of the Bible. They just don't believe them on their face. They want to search for evidences. 
And they think this for a few different reasons. And there's probably more than, I've named three, but there's probably more than this. But they think that empirical evidence, and, and what is empirical evidence? Empirical evidence is evidence based on the five senses, which you can see, feel, touch, hear, taste. So empirical evidence, that's what that is. That's sensory. That's, that's using human abilities, of course. They think that empirical evidence aids or helps their faith and gives a proof to their faith that would assure them of what they believe is, you know, okay, it's good. Think about that. Think about and as we go along here, I think this thought will expand of, of being wrong. <laughs> but if faith needs help to be believed, if something that you're believing needs help to be believed that's outside of what God says about it, <coughs> something that is you using your empirical evidence, your sensory evidence outside of Scripture, and you put your stamp of, you do that and put your stamp of approval on that and you say, that really helped. Can it be related to faith? It's sight. I know some people's brains are starting to turn now and they're thinking, they're backing up. Whoa, hold on, you're a mystic. So number one, empirical evidence. Number two, most of the time I think their evidence appeals to, uh, what is the basis of their evidence? Science, historic evidence. And sometimes their own like philosophical thoughts that are apart from the Bible, extra biblical meaning apart from the Bible. So if somebody can give a good argument, not by what thus saith the Lord, but hey, think about this. And then they give a, this eloquent philosophical argument or a scientific argument or something that's read in history. Maybe there's some writings that are written alongside the Bible as far as time is concerned that are contemporary with the Bible. We can look at other writings and say, yep, that gives witness to the Bible. That helps, they think, right? They think that aids to their faith. And thirdly, they are afraid of what the world, the non-religious world, would say about them in reference to them being irrational and having a blind faith. We, we always say, I always say here, our, our faith is not a blind leap in the dark, right? Well, that's the accusation of the world against us and those that would want to present historic, scientific, and philosophical evidence, sensory-based that's the accusation of, of atheists and agnostics is you're irrational, you're illogical. And um, seemingly those that go for empirical evidence, I, I don't think they have a leg to stand on when it comes to that accusation. I think we do as we talk about a presuppositional defense of the faith that we presuppose that everything God says is true because it's thus saith the Lord. And we have faith that has an understanding in it to believe what is said so that is the proper way of honoring the truth of God is to presuppose that it is truth based upon the God who cannot lie who made the claim and uh, God's people know him as the one that cannot lie the one that has prophesied all these things before they happen the God that does not change the God that 
we know has testified that he is faithful to himself, his character, his reputation, his attributes. So he's not gonna he's not gonna mislead his people in anything that he tells them to believe. So God's sheep by faith, in other words, see him as trustworthy. So whatever he says, they believe it. And, and usually whatever he says contextually is provided with understanding and evidence in reference to a revelation by the Spirit of God to the text, what's being said. And that's how it's embraced. Has anybody ever heard here of the story of the doubting twin? Anybody? No. What about doubting uh, Didymus? No? All right. Should I just skip it or should we go there? There we go. There we go. Let's check that out. John 20. I didn't know or I forgot or something, but I don't like tri I don't like trivia. I can't stand it, especially Bible trivia. I want to know doctrinal concepts and precepts. I don't want to know trivia. Uh, John 20, 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, the more modern versions say the twin. I don't remember seeing that before. I didn't mean to distract everybody. I just trying to keep everybody awake. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. They said that to Thomas. But he said unto them, Notice this, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So there's two lines in there. I've got underlined, except I see, I will not believe. Empirical evidence. Sensory, right? Verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and he stood in the, in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and behold my hands. Reach here your hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Even in that, <laughs> do that in believing. And maybe you'll believe, in other, in other words. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus had said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. But here's why I brought us here. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So Christ was saying, blessed are the presuppositionalists in reference to faith in me. Those that hear about me and presuppose the ones, the spot where they're getting the information, whether it be from God or from the word of God, is trustworthy. And there's an understanding with it. And there's a belief there without even seeing it with their eye or feeling it with their hand. That's a strong faith. That's, that's a faith that reaches out in tangibility and it's just as real as, and I argue if not more, than some type of a sensory. You can be fooled by your senses. It happens to me all the time. It doesn't help that I've got... Like one eye, I got no depth perception, but I'm always seeing stuff from a weird perspective and looking at something and thinking it's something else. 
And then you stare at it, and it, I guess that wasn't that, you know. I saw it wrong. And then you can hear things wrong, too, depending on contexts and terms and meanings and bad hearing, you know. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So this is the thrust in where we're going today concerning the resurrection. Go to John 17. It's related, very much related to this. And we'll get back into our text. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, this is Christ praying to the Father, even so I sent them into the world, speaking of his disciples. I sanctify myself for their sakes so that they also might be sanctified in the truth. I pray not for these alone, for these 11 disciples, but here we go. Now think about this in context of what we just had read. Blessed are they that have not seen, yet have believed. I don't pray for these 11 alone, but for those also who shall believe on me through their word. And this is the word that we are sanctified by. So the means of the gospel was delivered from Christ to the disciples and the, uh, the apostles' doctrine down to us. And it's propagated in every generation, the true gospel is. And it's what separates us. It's what God uses to separate us from the rest of the world by causing us to believe it, working in us a mighty work. And we'll see this toward the end of the message. So I want us to see all through here the emphasis of seeing by hearing words with a spiritual ear, seeing with a spiritual eye, and never divorcing that from the means of the truth that it says here that we're sanctified by. So back in our text in verse 24 was kind of the verse we were going to try to capitalize on, and it's to, to me it's exciting and it's strong. And um, there's consolation in it. 2.24, Acts 2.24. Whom God raised up. This is a fact or truth. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Notice, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Impossibility. The modern King James says it's impossible that he should not be held. King James should not be holden. It means the same thing. It means to use strength, seize, or to retain, to hold fast, to keep, to lay hold on, or to retain. Not happening, uh, the text says. It's impossible for this to happen to this Christ in reference to staying in the grave. He's not going to stay there. It's impossible because... These things, and Brian read 1 Corinthians 15, it, it lended to these same truths that he's coming up out of there. And we're going to talk the rest of the message, how we know that. That word from three words should be holden. I, I mentioned it means these things, strength, seize, retain, hold fast, lay, hold on. It comes from a root word that means vigor, strength, dominion, and power. So obviously, the, Christ's power exceeds this holding power. 
that some would assume, like the Sadducees, would assume that had him and wouldn't release him because the Sadducees don't believe in any resurrection, much less Christ's. But we're going to talk about how that it was impossible that he was held by death. Let's go to the verse before. Let's look at some of the reasons. Now, we looked at this several times here in reference to our uh, election in Christ series, Chosen in Christ. So we want to look at it now from a different angle, but yet the same root of the sovereignty of God. For him being delivered, notice, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So this is talking about God's predestinating purpose and decree and counsel and will and pleasure and all these things that have to do with his absolute sovereignty. This is who God is. This is the way he works. And especially concerning the atonement, he's going to be involved and engaged. And this is going to be a magnified situation here that he exercises his attributes in in making sure that it happens the way he wants it to happen, the way he purposed it to happen. He says, you've taken by wicked hands and have crucified and slain. So here's the point. Why did I read that? Because we're talking about the resurrection, not the death. The same God that determined by his counsel and foreknowledge to have Christ slain through the means of these men with their wicked hands is the same God who determined through his counsel and foreknowledge and predestined the resurrection. We have a habit of, uh, I do at least, and maybe it's a good habit or bad habit, I don't know. I can defend why I do it. I have a tendency to view the cross more than anything. Some people say, well, you know, the cross is the death. I mean, you got to prove that he's came back alive and they talk about the resurrection. Give me a second here. I'll, I'll kind of put some focus on that in a minute. But I have a tendency to, to use this superlapsarian language in this phrase. And I say, you know, the whole reason the earth was created so that Christ could die. You've heard me say that before. And I believe that's true. The overall arching purpose of God is to glorify himself in the death of Christ. So he's got to bring a world into play and declare the end from the beginning get to get this thing going right and then i always say that christ must die therefore adam must fall he uses adam in the fall to get to the death of christ and eve and, and us and everybody else to get to that point right there that's the crowning jewel of all his purpose in the fullness of time when his time has come as he said finally Father, my hour is come. Glorify me as I glorify you. This is what it's all about, the glory of God in the death of Christ, the accomplished death of Christ. That's why I concentrate on the death so much. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm determined not to know anything except among you except Christ being crucified. Now, I think in the, all those statements, the resurrection is assumed because the cross, we preach a cross that's accomplished and successful. We don't, <laughs> we don't preach the boohoo cross where we see these guards and stuff just beat this guy up and it's a sad scene. He said before that, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish my decease. Peter tried to stop. He said, you don't know what you're doing. Get behind me, Satan. Put that sword up. He fixed the dude's ear and he went on his business. He had to get this thing going. So, you know, Judas, do what you got to do. Hurry up. We got to get this going. Father, the hour has come. God turned the lights out, imputed sin, 
satisfied law and justice. This is what <laughs> this is what we were waiting for, right? This is what it's all about. Okay, so we we talk about cause and effect, not just in some like intellectual way, but I mean, it has to be intellectual. We're not thinking about it. You know, I'm, I don't want to make us fools or ignorant, but it's not just an exercise. In other words, it's biblical. The gospel is has to have the you know vital three main ingredients in it: the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's more than that, but it has to at least have that in it. So we have the death. That's what we always talk about, and we don't talk about it unless we talk about an accomplished, successful, effectual, finished death, right? So that's where God's purpose culminates right there. Now, of course, what's next? Well, he really did die, so he's got to be buried, right? He really did die. That His burial proved that he really, he wasn't faking death. It was real. He would, the wages of sin of all his people were legal death and physical death. So not just any death either. It was his kind of death by his reasons for a certain purpose. So burial is going to come from that death. Now what if what if I switched emphasis around and I talked more about his burial than I did his death? I don't talk much about his burial. When it comes in the text I talk about it. But what if every week it was just like burial, burial, burial? That would not make sense, would it? And his death, not even talk about what his death did. His burial proved he died. He really did die. It's connected to the fact that he had a body. It goes into the person of Christ, the purpose of God, all these things. But it's obvious why the death is lifted up higher and talked about more. The effect of that death is his burial. What is the result three days later? The result or the effect of that, of his accomplished sacrifice, which was accepted by the Father, is his resurrection. So the death drives it all. The purpose of God talks about his death, and then when he dies and accomplishes it, it drives the rest, and the rest is assumed. Some people that, that dabble in the Bible and theology and doctrine and good, that are all churchy, they want to talk about this resurrection, and they want to fall for science and the world that kind of puts question marks up about the resurrection, right? This is why I kind of hit on this thing of, presupposing what the scripture says about the resurrection versus looking at extra biblical sources and looking at other historical books and trying to get a witness from those books, what they said about was Jesus really walking around after he died, right? Because some people, they want to find those aids and they think they're helps. You know, well, Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian, said... And they'll quote like they'll quote that like they'll quote, quote a confession of faith or something you know, and I'll keep going back to Josephus, the the historian, for an aid or a an help, and they'll try to find other ones, and um, they'll watch these shows on TV, and it's uh it's them in their minds, like arguing against these shows as if they have to give an ear to them anyway, on cable TV, about you know, the History Channel or Nova or these science shows about creation or about Christ, was he real? Christ, did he resurrect? And so on. And, and all this stuff about, you know, did he not really die? And did he go? And they went to France and 
all that Templar stuff. You know what I mean? All that stuff. You know, but they'll get sucked into that. And they'll keep lifting over a rock here and there. Like, oh, i got to find out this information. <laughs> the scripture has it. Believe what God says about it. What are some of the other reasons? Well, there's the covenant promise to the Son. We, uh, through some of the texts we read, there the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. If you want to turn there, Psalm 110 was one of them. We'll read verses 1 and 4. Psalm 110, verse 1. And this was quoted in Acts 2 in our text. The Lord said unto my Lord, so this is David speaking. He said, the Lord said unto my Lord. So right away you got to figure out what, it's, what's going on here. Who is being talked about, right? So David is saying that the father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then, again, we're looking at reasons why we should be believing what we believe concerning the resurrection. Now, if he's going to sit at the right hand, I mean, he has to get beyond the resurrection to do it. And then it says, until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is like a timing thing, and this is like an event thing, and it is beyond the resurrection. And look at here, this is even stronger, verse 4, the Lord said, the Lord said this, the Lord has sworn, that's over-the-top language, the God that cannot lie, the Lord has sworn and even in redundancy, and will not repent. He will not change his mind. You, speaking to Christ, you are a priest, how long? Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was that king priest that there's no record of his uh, beginning or end. No mother, no father, where did he come from? I don't know. He's, he's like forever guy. Type of Christ. The father says to the son, this is the type of priest you're going to be. I swear... And I'm not changing my mind. That's God saying that. That can't lie. Is that reason enough to believe it? Or you want to go outside and look some kind of other source to try to find? I don't know why. Look at Psalm 118. This is requoted in the, in the New Testament in different areas. Psalm 118 and verse 22. The stone, capital S in my uh, version, the stone which the builders disallowed or refused is become the headstone of the corner. That would be kind of a, not a good deal if this was somebody that just was stuck in a grave somewhere. How can you be the head of anything if you're dead? Notice this, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Said a mouthful there. And look, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, you know, I've seen this verse quoted for sort of the same way maybe Romans 8.28 is quoted when something goes wrong. Hey, this is the day the Lord's made. Rejoice in it and be glad. I even had a sovereign grace preacher write that in a note to me years ago when I was talking about something that was really affecting my life. It's not what that means. This is the day which the Lord has made. Hold that thought. Let's go to John 8. John 8. 
This is a context where Christ is talking to the Jews who said, Abraham is our father. Right? So Christ is responding to that statement. And he's going to kind of demolish this idea of, you know, big whoop, who cares? You're not really saying much by talking about him being your physical seed. You know, even you're, you're babbling about the tradition and all that, but it doesn't matter. Verse 43, John 8. Why do you not understand what my speech, Christ saying, what I'm saying. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Even, notice, because you cannot hear my word, you can't hear what I'm saying. Oh, you can hear it with physical ear. You, you don't understand a word I'm saying. Why? You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not abide in what? The truth, because he has no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So when we say... And, and I say quite often, I refer to a false gospel as satanic. I mean, everything here that Christ said in verse 44. I want that to stick. There is no truth in it. Now, you might look at it and dissect it, and you can say, you know, there's some words in there that are said that I actually hold to. There is no truth in it. When you put it together... And you add lies to a truth. There is no lie of the truth, as it says in 1 John. It overall, at the end of the day, it speaks to its own and the father of it. The one that in the garden said, has God said? The lie of Satan. Verse 45. And because I tell you the truth... You believe me not. That, isn't that weird, that statement? Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe it. Well, he talked about the father, their father, the devil, tells them lies, they believe them. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. It's because you're not in the family. You're, not, you're of your father, the devil. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say, again, the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you're not of God. It's a repeat of what he said up there earlier, that you can't hear my word. Does that sound familiar? You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that you're a Samarian and you have a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There's one that seeks and judges. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, again, his words, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that you have a devil. Abraham's dead. And the prophets, in other words, are dead too. And you say, if a man keep my saying, speaking of himself, Christ, he shall never taste of death. And here's the 
grand question about their hero. Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets that are dead? Who do you make yourself? <laughs> Who do you make yourself? It's funny. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say that he's your God. You make claims that my father's your God. You claim you believe in him. Yet you have not, verse 55, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and I keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. This is the day the Lord has made. Right here. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, You're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? <laughs> Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Eternally, of course. Eternally, unchangeably, I am. I was and I will be. And I don't change. I mean, that already has that idea in there that I don't change. Because I am. Of course, then they took up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the middle of him, and so passed by. We know why, because his hour was not yet come. So what are some of the other, while we're in John there, look at chapter 2. What are some of the other reasons? We, we see the covenant. We see talk about these promises and this decree and so on, that it's going to take place because God said it would. Well, as we come into time, there's, there's more sort of contemporary prophecies involved. John 2.18, Then the Jews answered and said unto him, What sign, what empirical evidence, in other words, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's always about, you know, there's always bragging about you don't have time served in. You know, they're always bragging about the things they're involved with are older than Christ. The Jews said, This temple was 46 years in the building, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, talking about later on, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And notice this, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Go to Matthew 12, Matthew 12 and verse 38. Here again, reasons why we believe the resurrection. Matthew 12, 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we want to see a sign from you. We want the sensory stuff. Because it is entertaining, isn't it? See, that's why, that's why the contemporary entertainment-based churches are popular. They stimulate the senses. Not the spiritual senses. The humanistic 
census. It's entertaining. It's thrilling. Verse 39, but he answered and said unto them, this is not what they wanted to hear. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Referring to a spiritual adulterous generation. Those that are forming spiritual fornication. So the question is, he, he makes a statement here about this generation. And is he just isolating the generation to back then when he was talking? The question is, would this still qualify today? Of course. And it goes on to say, and there shall be no sign given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or huge fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, or in other words, the grave. The men of Nineveh, notice this, the men of Nineveh, that's the ones jo Jonah was preaching to, shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the proclaiming or the preaching of Jonah. They repented. They agreed with that message Jonah was preaching concerning the gospel. They repented and they believed. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. You know, that was a question up there we read a while ago about Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? <laughs> Before Abraham was, I am. Here they're saying that Christ is saying of himself, there's, there's one, one greater. I'm giving you some hints, he's saying. <laughs> there's one greater. Well, he's not done yet. The queen of the south shall raise up in judgment with this generation. That's some double whammy there. Two, two different groups giving testimony against these people in this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth, what, to hear the wisdom of Solomon? Behold, there's one greater than Solomon here, speaking of himself. Back in our text in uh, verse 25, Acts 2.25, let's look at some more of this. Some of this here is, is uh, most of it's a quote from Psalm 16, Acts 2.25. For David speaks concerning him, speaking of Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for because he is on my right hand and I shall not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice. And notice this. What was glad? Here it says my tongue was glad. Christ is always the mediator. He's the word of God. He uses his mouth to communicate. He's the word of God. Christ is happy to talk about the truth, talk about his Father, talk about salvation, talk about grace. His tongue is glad. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where it's like really screwed up and you say, I don't even want to talk about it? <laughs> this is the opposite right here. His tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because you will not leave my soul or my person in hell or the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And corruption refers to a decay or rotting. He's going to be resurrected. So what are some of the other reasons? What we always talk about every week. The person and work of Christ. I mean, we've already been talking about it a little bit. But if you just divvy that up, his person, the fact that he is impeccable. He has two perfect natures. In one person, 
His character attributes are flawless. They're equal in essence to the Father's. He is the qualified lamb without spot or blemish to be the sacrifice. You go on and on and on and talk about the perfection that is in his person. And then you look at the flawless, perfect work of Christ. It's impeccable also. He did the will of the Father. He fulfilled the law. He had sin imputed to him. He took that on. He was their substitute. He satisfied law and justice for that sin that was imputed to him. He finished that work. He accomplished that atonement for those people perfectly, flawlessly, impeccably. And in doing that, he established a righteousness by himself for their justification when his righteousness is imputed to them. Impeccable person, impeccable work. Is this enough reason? <laughs> is grace sufficient, in other words? Is that a truth you can get a hold of? Works cannot even enter into the equation. You know, since, since the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again for salvation of God's people without any assistance of God's people, no assistance from the elect, what makes anybody think that they can do anything to assist God in what Christ has already done? What makes them think that? The only thing that can make them think that is carnal, natural, fleshly lies from Satan. It's the only place it comes from. It's from the flesh. It's from the humanism. It's idolatry and blasphemy. It doesn't enter in in the gospel. Back in our text, verse 29, Acts 2, 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you about the patriarch David. So he's talking about David. David's famous. I mean, he's all throughout the Old Testament. Everybody knows who David is. And they're preaching. He says, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about David here. I'm going to speak to you freely about him and say this fact about him. That he is both dead and he's buried and his sepulcher is right here with us. He's, his body is in that tomb right now. He's not the one that's being talked about, that he's going to be doing anything in reference to reigning or doing anything on the throne or anything. He's not the head, the chief cornerstone. He, he's not that. We're not. He's saying we're not talking about David here. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. I believe it's talking about Christ's throne. Some people say that's David's throne. I don't think Christ is coming back and sitting on the literal throne of David in Jerusalem and kind of start to set up some kind of little going backwards to do some kind of kingdom with that. Verse 31, he seeing this before spake of what? This is commentary on what was talked about in the Old Testament. He spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul or his person was not left in hell or the grave. Neither his flesh did see corruption. He wasn't going to rot. He wasn't going to rot in the grave, corrupt in the grave. And then here it says, this Jesus has God raised up. Wherefore, we are all witnesses. 
So during this context, this time frame, this didn't happen not too long ago when he was saying this. And he's saying we're all witnesses of it. And I don't know how many of the 500 that were included, but the scripture says 500 saw him, saw Christ after the resurrection. Now I've got a lot to say about that and not much time to say it, but we've talked about how that the early church, I can't enter too much into the understanding of it, for some reason needed some extra things in the early immaturity stage of the church. The main reason is they didn't have the full scripture, the full canon of the New Testament complete. So they looked at these miracles, these things that were going on in the early church, these these gifts and these things that were taking place, and that was needed until the canon of Scripture was complete. I can't deal with anything before that because I was born after the canon was complete and God revealed what's in the canon to me as the truth of the gospel. So I can't even imagine before that. I can't. I, I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't need it. We've got this. This is better. This is clearer. This, what we have, is clearer than being one of those 500. Can anybody disprove that? I don't think so. That's the truth of it. The, the truth of Scripture is complete. We have it all. And at, the more that we immerse ourselves in it, the more clarity there is than being one of those 500, seeing him, talking to him, putting our arm around him, shaking his hand, hugging him, kissing him, talking to him. We know there were some people that hung around him every day that split hell wide open. They're, they're not believers. It's the truth of God's record revealed to our minds, not hanging around somebody in a physical proximity. So what's the prescribed witness is for today? What is it? It's, it's preaching. It's words. Words of truth. God reveals and grants faith with an understanding to receive it concerning what's said of these words of the truth that's, that's recorded in the scripture. Then do we move to research on, maybe we'll research the writers of the Bible. People do that too. They, they research like, who are these people that pin the scriptures? And they go into their lives and they see some problems and they think, well, these guys really just, they made a lot of mistakes in their life. Who's to say that they didn't make mistakes as they were writing Scripture? You know, and they're trying, you know, the science shows are trying to get you to, you know, has God said? In other words, they're Satan with his forked tongue. Maybe we need to do some scientific research as evidence in reference to the starting of creation. Should we take a field trip down to the Creation Museum? Let's go down there. Let's research that. Let's buy some books. Let's get some research books. We'll put them over here with the other books that nobody reads. And we'll handle those books. Oh, maybe we'll, we'll do some historical research on the translations of the Bible. Not just the, not just the ones that pin the Bible, but after that, the translations. And then there's the doubts that are cast. That's the world's goal. Cast the doubts. Cast the doubts. Has God said? Then we'll do some, maybe some old secular history books. Like I said, maybe we'll pick up a couple copies of Josephus and some of these other contemporary writers. Lesser known, greater known. Get them all. Let's have access to it all. 
And then we'll look for, what we'll do also is we'll look for some more miraculous or mysterious signs that point to some clues or some evidence. Maybe something like uh, in these movies, these fascinating movies, like the, like the Rage of the Lost Ark, you know, all that garbage. Let's look for the chalice. Let's look for the shroud. You know, let's, let's do that goofy carnival stuff. Used to, they used to have, it was almost like a freak show carnival thing where they'd get, set up these things and people could come and handle like Peter's teeth and a splinter from the cross and some of Mary's hair, you know. Uh, it's not helps. These aren't helps. Even if those were real, they're not helps. You understand the point? They're not helps. They're distractions. So there's no need for miracles, no need for signs, no need for science, no need for history. Remember what the rich man was told by Christ, the rich man in hell? He said, people alive on earth would not even believe a person that came back from the dead to testify about this place, hell. Christ said, these people have Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote of me. In other words, it goes back to truth, to, to propositional truth. Presuppositional, pre, I can't say those two things together, but presupposed propositions of truth. Back in our text, verse 33. Therefore, being at the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou right at my right hand. Notice, until I make your enemies your footstool. We quoted that in another text, right? In Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Christ that we speak of that all those promises were made to, to whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. The Father made him Lord and Christ. So notice up there in verse 35, until I make your enemies your footstool. I got a question for those of those that claim to believe the gospel, whether it be here or on listening. Were you ever an enemy of God? It says, until I make your enemies your footstool. Some people might hear that and think, well, that's got a negative connotation. Let me read some verses to you. Some of these I'll ask you to go to because there's more than one verse. But these one-liners, I'll, I'll just give you the um, reference and, and quote them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, Whereas God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation has to do with something previous problem. Some enmity was there first. Reconciliation is fixing that enmity. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, but putting the word of reconciliation in us. Romans 8, 7. The carnally, in other words, the fleshly or natural mind, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So there is a 
were we pre will we admit previously that we were of the fleshly carnal natural mind that needed the new birth because if we were we were at enmity against God we were we were in the flesh and condemned by the law turn to Romans 5 in verse 6 there's a few verses strung together here I wants to see that, that shows who we were and what kind of shape we were in when he dealt with us in grace. Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the good guys, the ungodly. I would say enemies would be ungodly and ungodly would be enemies. And we're talking about comparison to the holy God. Verse 7, For one will with difficulty die for a righteous one, yet perhaps one would even dare die for a good one. But God commends his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, ungodly, enemies. Much more, verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were, what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. Through faith, of course. So, reconciliation is a good thing. The scripture talks about it as being part of salvation. If we want to say that we're a participant in that, we have to readily admit we were an enemy so that we can be a participant in the reconciliation. Isn't that better than acting like you're good and not having to worry about reconciliation and going to hell? Just say, I'm an enemy. I believe your truth about me being an enemy. Therefore, I enjoy your reconciliation. And I'm not going to hell. Ephesians uh, 2 has some of this language in it too about the labeling of uh, who God's people were in the past. Verse 1, And you who he hath quickened, or, or in other words, made alive, regenerated, you hath he made alive who were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, that's that liar, and the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our way of life in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and the thoughts, and what were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Sounds like enemies, right? So God is the God of the living. He makes people alive by 
a spiritual resurrection. Uh, Brian read earlier, talked about, you know, the resurrection of Christ. It said if, if Christ is not raised, we're not going to be raised. And that was talking about physical. But think about this idea of a spiritual resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed to be resurrected from the spiritual dead so that we can see and come to Christ. Colossians 1. We don't have too many more of these. We're going to go to Colossians 1 and then go to Ephesians. And I think we're done. Colossians 1, 20. And through him, having made peace through the blood of his cross, it pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself through him, whether they be things of earth or things in heaven. And you, speaking to these believers who had a history and an identity in being enemies. And he's going to describe it here. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled. Whether these works were works of outward immorality or whether they were works of self-righteous religious stench, either way, or a combination of both, they were enemies at one time. But he's reconciled them. How? Just like everybody else that's elect is reconciled. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy, without blemish, and without charge in his sight. Ephesians 1. How did this happen? What kind of faith um, had to take place that God gives to awaken us, to make this happen, to be connected with repentance so that we um, turn to turn from idols to God to serve the living God since he's the God of the living. And as we read this, let's see here if uh, in Ephesians 1, if this looks like any kind of description of an offer. Let's see if this looks like here something that God tries to do with the non-elect. Let's see here if this looks like some kind of condition that man's supposed free will would allow God to do in order to save them. Verse 17. I need an excuse to read this text. I like it so much. <laughs> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spiritual wisdom and the what revelation in the knowledge of him. This is always about who he is, communicated by the words of the gospel to Given understanding. The eyes, verse 18, of your understanding being enlightened. This has to do with the work of the Spirit, of course. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of his glory in the inheritance of the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness, and here it's building up, what is it too, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power and strength which he worked in Christ in raising him from the dead. That's what it's saying. That's the same power. It's the surpassing greatness of his power toward us that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the spiritual resurrection. That's no different than the same power that raised Christ up from the dead. And he seated him. It doesn't stop there. He seated him 
at the right hand of the heavenlies, far above all principalities and authorities and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come or the age to come. So, so the comparisons are perpetual. They don't stop. And he's saying now and forevermore, he's top. Keep bringing people on and comparing. I'm just going to tell you they can't beat him is what he's saying. He's higher. He's exalted. Nobody. I don't care. You compound the numbers. You do whatever kind of math you need. The numbers you need to crunch. It doesn't compare. Can't be done. So it goes on to say in verse 22. What? He has put all things under his feet. Does this include his formal enemies? Did you see the text earlier we read about that promise that that was going to happen? Being under his feet, being a part of being at his feet, being around and being bowed down to him is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And notice this, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church. The church is at his feet. They're gathered around him. I heard some word studies one time about this idea of uh, being under his feet, and it was sort of like a, an extension of a chair that he rests his feet on that he is with, and this is referring to the church. I don't want to tease you there without giving you any information, but that's maybe something we can look at in the future, but it sounded pretty convincing as I heard a long uh, exposition of, of some texts about the connection, a positive connection to his former enemies being part of an extension of him and him being among them, being in their midst and then being at his feet. It goes on to say, talking about the church, which is his body, verse 23, in the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is the kind of faith, the God-given faith that becomes irresistible as God has shown and has revealed the greatest of all miracles, the saving of our soul. This thing about, you know, wondering about, could God really do something that's like more spectacular than the Big Bang Theory? Could he really create all things and control all things? Well, I tell you what, if you, if you have experienced subjectively because of the objective truth being revealed to you concerning what he did for you, an ungodly enemy, then... You've experienced a miracle that blows away physical creation. This is the new creation. We just talked about that last week. This is the miracle of the new creation. God has uh, done a perfect work that was the ground upon which he can now be just and justify. He can justify the ungodly sinful enemies and reconcile them, justify them, reconcile them. Upon the basis of that work, we know that the Spirit deposits all the spiritual blessings. It includes regeneration, revelation, understanding, faith, repentance, just to name a few. And we trust that the, those works of God, the spiritual blessings, that after that, that there now is no looking to extra helps and aids from the world to certify what God says is true. We trust the one telling us. We hear his voice. We presuppose because he's the God that cannot lie, that it is impossible for the grave to hold Christ back after he accomplished redemption. And as a result of that, shouldn't we presuppose that what he says about us being seated with him at the right hand in the heavenlies is also true? 
That's what he said. He said, we are right now seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, how are you going to check that? How are you going to do that? Think about that. What kind of science are you going to deal with to figure that one out? Josephus or the historians aren't going to talk about that. They don't know anything about it. Science ain't going to help you. Your senses aren't going to help you. You can't astral project yourself, you know, to go up and check, am I really seated up there? How would you verify that besides the truth and an understanding that it's coming from the one that's telling it is trustworthy? Have you been taught of God? Do you hear his voice in his word? That's the only place it comes from. Don't look past that. Don't look beyond that. And when you hear these things, grab the context of the understanding that's with it and embrace it and grow in it. I'm going to stop there. I had some other verses, but I think I've gone on pretty long here. Questions or comments?